0: Hi guys, and welcome to another edition of the Offscript Podcast. What have we got in store for you in this instalment? Well, the news that the Foo Fighters will be headlining the Formula One Etihad Airways Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Producer Rog, as he so often does, has some amazing facts about a certain Dave Grohl of the Foo Fighters. In the kickback, well, it's all about the PSG frenemies. This is a story utter bonkers out of the French capital. Who needs enemies with teammates like this? Former gaffer here at Dubai I Sport, Emma Dodds. She's also with us to talk about Stephen Gerrard's move to Aston Villa and what it means for her beloved Glasgow Rangers. And we've got an in-depth interview with Ben Ryan, the man who masterminded Fiji's Rio 2016 gold medal success. He also had success right here in Dubai with England back in 2010. Fascinating stuff from Ben. It's on the way. The Off Script Podcast. Big announcement yesterday. Huge. Sunday of the Etihad Airways, Abu Dhabi, Formula One Grand Prix, the after-race gig will be led by whom? The Foo Fighters. Indeed. Have you ever seen them? No, I've never seen them live. See, Foo Fighters get short shrift on this show. There's a lot of people out there, not massive fans. I think they're perfect. You need a big band. Robbie always says it. I think you need a massive, loud band to finish off an F1 weekend. Uh,
1: Well, it finishes off the season as well, right? So, yeah, the Foo Fighters is perfect.
0: And I think, looking at the acts,
1: the Foo Fighters kind of balanced that line out perfectly they've yeah. done it really well so on Thursday you've got Khaled uh, Friday Stormzy Saturday Lewis Capaldi and Sunday Foo Fighters that's you know you've got you've got
0: everything there you do uh, and I mean listen Stormzy I'm I'm a fan of one song. I'm a sellout. It's that one that he does with Ed Sheeran is the one that I'm a fan of. The big one for me out of all of those, I've never seen the Foo Fighters. Anyone who has, 4001, let us know mm-hmm. how the show was. It's Lewis Capaldi for me. It's really? Saturday night that may just... Me just get me down that road. Really? That'll
1: be, that'll be. Great stuff. I mean, I know Stormzy headlined Glastonbury, I'm gonna say three years ago, but with the last eighteen months. Yeah. It could have been four, could have been five, I don't know. Um Lewis Capaldi, I've not seen him live, but he's he's headlined some big festivals. Uh he had that beef with No Gallagher yeah, when I think he played Glastonbury, came <laughs> out with Snow so Gallagher's t shirt yeah. on, that was funny. Um and the Foo Fighters, they're just they're a they're a stadium rock band that have toured the world, they've got tons of songs that you'll recognize, yeah. you know, even if you don't claim to be a fan, they'll finish that night off perfectly, they know how to put on a show, it's a huge weekend and I think they're great for it. Dave Grohl's
0: never had any formal music training.
1: He has not, Chris, no and um, Self-taught Self-taught And he plays everything He's a bit like Prince In that sense We talked about Prince uh, A couple of weeks ago Multi-instrumentalist But, you know oh. There's a lot of people That do this But um, Dave Grohl himself Has never had a music lesson Doesn't even know The names of chords Just <laughs> kind of, you know Figures out what sounds good Puts it in a song Lays it down He e- even That's produces awesome. himself As well He is, of course As you'll remember The drummer from Nirvana Who went on to The Foo Fighters um, And, of course You know, it, drumming Drumming's about feel. Drumming's about sort of rhythm and 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 attitude and mood and things like that and swing, as many people will tell you. So he approaches his musical instruments from the perspective of a drummer. It's really interesting. I've I've got a clip here that will kind of show that he. One of the first songs he wrote after Nirvana broke up and before Foo Fighters became huge was Everlong, and it's got a really famous intro for, for Foo Fighters fans, and he plays it on guitar, but he played it with drum technique in mind. Have a listen, then I'll explain it a bit more. Okay. So you may or may not recognise that uh, intro. It's Everlong, a really good song from the Foo Fighters. But the the, the the way he approached it, the way he played it, the way he talks about it is that those low beats, that dung 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 dun at the beginning is the kick drum so boom, 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 yeah boom, boom, boom. and then he plays the uh, higher notes which uh, are the did it's so, a bum 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 it's like I'm a drum yeah thanks very much best i could do he <laughs> said that so so the way he played it was that the low e string was uh, like uh the kick drum and then uh, the higher notes were where he was t- uh, tapping away at the cymbals so that's that's how he in his head worked it out and i just think that's really interesting
0: it's awesome. Is what um, it is. Uh, i couldn't believe as well because you are. if anyone's got a musical question you pop it to producer Rog he is an encyclopedia as much as I am when it comes to sport and specifically football but I never knew this he was almost after Nirvana there was another option for him. Yep. It wasn't just Foo Fighters. Yeah, he nearly joined a band called Tom
1: Petty and the Heartbreakers if you, you may have heard of them. Tom Absolutely Petty huge have, yeah. band. Absolutely huge uh, artist and the Heartbreakers were his backing band. He played with them a couple of times. Uh, he performed Honey Bee and uh, You Don't Know Jack when they played on Saturday Night Live. This was post Nirvana so he was trying to you know figure out what he was doing and after the gig, Tom Petty offered him a full time spot in the band. He's an incredible drummer so there's no wonder that, um, that Tom Petty wanted him. Uh, Grohl turned it down because he'd already started his Foo Fighters project.
0: Uh, but what could have been a sliding doors moment? I might be wrong in this assessment, Rog. But Dave Grohl, its fair to say—he's not universally liked. Uh, he gets a lot of—he gets a lot of grief. I certainly see on social media a lot of people are not fans of Dave Grohl. I think he's
1: too nice I think he's overly nice Um, you speak to people who've interviewed him oh sorry you hear from people who've interviewed him and they call him the nicest man in rock and roll really yeah but then you know that can also rub against people who you know if you you want a rock star you want somebody to be a bit gritty a bit dirty a bit. and he's, he's none of that he's just a nice fella and you see him on stage and that comes across as well loves music loves performing loves what he does I think he's considered himself the happiest man alive and the other thing that blew my mind first album he did it all. He did it all. He recorded it all. didn't have a band, so he, he laid down all the tracks himself, produced it all himself uh, in his... I think he'd built a home studio by then off the money from Nirvana, um, so did it in the comfort of his, of his own home, and then he recruited a band. Um, and even... <laughs> he'd recruited a band and then when they went to record the second album they laid all the tracks down as the group and then he secretly went back in and rec- <laughs> yeah. re- honestly he? re-recorded some of the tracks Yeah, uh, the tracks as in you know the drum track on this song or wow. the guitar track
0: on that song yeah, <laughs> he went and perfectionist re- he went and re-recorded, wow the reason we're talking Foo Fighters confirmation uh, over the last 24 hours that they will be performing down in Abu Dhabi the final night of the F1 season, it will come to a climax in the nation's capital of course Max Verstappen when it comes to on the track he has a 22-point lead over Lewis Hamilton. I've got a funny feeling it's going to go all the way down to the wire.
1: The Offscript Podcast.
0: The Kickback. Stories that have the world of
1: social sharing
0: on Offscript. Right then, I've got to get to this story to kickstart the Kickback today. This blew my mind. It broke late last night. And it beggars belief. All I will say to kickstart this story is who needs enemies when you've got teammates like this? (sighs) Because this is mental. One or two of you might have seen this story. It's an astonishing one out of France. Now, we are talking women's football. Okay, we don't probably talk enough about women's football in truth. But this is a story that I I wish I wasn't telling you because French international and Paris Saint-Germain woman footballer, her name is Aminata Diallo. She's been detained by police in connection with a vicious street assault on a teammate. Wow. Now, listen, it's deplorable at the best of times. In fact, all the times. I can't ever condone a vicious street-beating assault but of your own teammate, it seems a bit crazy. It's her fellow national player as well. This all came about last week in Paris. Now, Diallo was returning from a dinner organised by her club, PSG, with fellow midfielder, Chiara eh, Hamrui. This was last Thursday. When armed men attacked the pair in their car, hitting Hamroui on the legs with an iron bar. Ooh. That's what's been reported by L'Equipe over there in France. Now, Hamroui, who required stitches in hospital afterwards, she was absent from the PSG side on Tuesday evening. They had a Champions League match, UEFA Champions League match, against Real Madrid at home. And guess who profited from Hamrui? Don't tell me. Diallo. They play the same position? Yes. Oh, Diallo played in her place in central midfield. Now, PSG have said that it was and is working with police to shed light on the facts. The club will be following the investigation and will look at the conclusions that need to be drawn. I should point out at this point that uh, Aminata Diallo, as far as I'm aware, has not been charged. This is allegedly she was involved in this street attack. Now, it said that uh, the club said that since the attack, the club had taken all the necessary measures to ensure the health, well-being and Security of its players. Now Diallo, uh, who is 26 years of age, she was briefly held by the Balaclava-wearing attackers during the assault near Hamrui's home, but was not injured. Oh, okay. So alarm bells are ringing yeah, a little yeah. bit. We're joining the, the dots. Hence the suspicion
1: that sounds like. suspicion
0: yeah. that. And it's quite remarkable because not only are they teammates at PSG, as they say, they're also international wow. teammates as well. Diallo, she's been capped seven times by her country. She was called up to replace Hamrui in the squad uh, when Hamrui recently had to pull out through injury at a separate injury. Uh, unfortunately, Diallo was not used by the coach, Corinne uh, Diakri. And again, it just takes me back to remember I go back to 1994, the Lily Hammer Olympics, mm. Tonya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. Yeah, it, do, it does uh, sound very, very like that. Shocking. Wow. Don't worry, Roger. I will not be setting anyone on you. I won't be <laughs> setting any thugs to beat you up. I well, mean, that's, that's beyond the pale.
1: We don't play the same position anyway. Well, I, um, I could never play goalie with this back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I could never play producer, to be honest, Roger, either. But that is astonishing and I, I've seen I Tonya have you seen that movie yeah that's what I was thinking about. Robbie. Yeah, I mean that tells the story and obviously dramatised but Tonya Harding if you're kind of new to that particular story back in 1994 and this particular story has drawn comparisons with it because the ex-husband and bodyguard of American figure skater Tonya Harding arranged an attack on her rival Nancy Kerrigan in the build up to the 1994 Olympics she was that kind of I guess that worried that she was going to be beaten that she set her ex-husband and bodyguard to attack Nancy Kerrigan—it's—it's it's just bonkers. Driven to extreme measures—that's the, the pressure oh, of it, yeah. I mean, cheapers, as I say, who needs enemies <sighs> with friends/slash teammates like that? It is all alleged; it's not proved yet, right? Yeah, the solicitors will be in touch. Yeah, if I don't say any of that, but yeah, that just kind of beggars belief.
2: The Off Script Podcast.
0: Big news from a footballing standpoint, certainly in the UK, is that Stephen Jenner, the man who led Rangers to their 55th league title last season, he has left the club. He is the new manager of Aston Villa and one lady who's got a bigger interest than most in this story, it is the former boss here at Dubai 103.8, very good mate of mine and of course of the station, it is the one and only Emma Dodds. Emma, good evening to you my friend. Good evening Christopher, great to talk to you as always. It's wonderful to have you back on the airwaves of Dubai 103.8 M's listen I want to get straight into this in fact before I do I don't want to embarrass you here but I want to play this clip that you've posted up on your Instagram today because I found it fascinating it's garnering plenty of views it's gone viral you can check this out on Emma's Instagram this was Emma interviewing Stephen Gerrard oh a week or so ago Emma was that a week ago
3: yeah a a bit longer than that about the 21st of October okay. after a, a game at Ibrox in the Europa League okay so about 20 days ago Listen to the exchange. You just touched on speculation around your own name this week, Stephen. What would you say to those linking you with a move away?
0: Do I look happy? Very. Do I look settled? Don't ask me silly questions then. Thanks for talking to us. You're welcome. Don't ask silly questions. It was the blooming right question to ask Emma. And it's proven (laughs) that because he's off. Give me your reaction to the news today.
3: Uh, Yeah, well that clip sparked quite a reaction, quite an (laughs) angry reaction as well from a lot of Rangers fans. I have to say it was was very much tongue in cheek at the time. It was a wink and a fist pump afterwards. But yeah, I mean, (laughs) clearly it wasn't a silly question because perhaps it was the right question at the wrong time. Mm. That question was brought on by speculation linking him to Newcastle, but... I think a lot of Rangers fans had hoped that that answer meant that whatever speculation and whatever interest may have been shown in him, it would have been the same answer. But of course, as we now know, Aston Villa came calling and it didn't take too long for him to to make up his mind. So, yeah, Stephen Gerrard has now left Rangers after joining in 2018. He's the new manager of Aston Villa, as you've just said in the news. And it's a very mixed emotion in Glasgow. I think the timing of it is abrupt because this has, has all come about quite quickly. We've seen managerial appointments drag out you know, in the current climate. But this one's certainly not the case from Aston Villa's perspective. And now it leaves Rangers with a very big question is who do they bring in to fill his shoes? And, you know, he's put together a very good Rangers team who can now take that on and bring more success to the club. I think that's the biggest concern from the Rangers fans' perspective.
0: Emma, you're as, as aware as I am over this. A lot of Celtic fans have never forgiven Brendan Rodgers for leaving that football club in the manner and the timing that he did to take over at Leicester City. There's some Celtic fans who listen to this show won't even say his name. They're that disgusted <laughs> with the way that he left. And I, I can't help but bring up Celtic and Brendan Rodgers because there are a lot of similarities to Stephen. We're mid-season. He's left the football club to join what many Rangers fans would say is an inferior club in Aston Villa what is the general mood of Rangers fans is he still loved or are some now loathing Steven Jennard
3: oh yeah it's definitely mixed I mean he's gone from being you know an absolute god amongst the Rangers fans too well just certainly from what I can see on my own social media feeds a lot of people calling him out saying that he'll never be a legend for the way that this has unfolded I think you have to look at this situation with a little bit of perspective and it's exactly the same as Brendan Rogers. you know the opportunity comes to, to manage in the Premier League I would say Brendan's was slightly different he had managed in the Premier League before so you know should he or could he have stayed and seen out the job a little bit longer with Celtic and then perhaps picked his time but as we know, managerial vacancies don't come about yeah. every day. They come come about often, as we also know from, from the footballing world. But, you know, it has to be the right fit for a manager. Steven Gerrard clearly thinks that the opportunity to go and manage in the Premier League, which will be the first time that he's done it at a club like Aston Villa, where clearly finances are not going to be an issue, is the right decision for him. The Rangers fans, however, feel that he still had a job to do here. One trophy in nine. How much do you view that as a success? Well... You have to say the magnitude of the one trophy that he did bring. It stopped 10 in a row and it won Rangers their first league championship for 10 years. It was a huge title and it marked the the return of Rangers to the big time. It marked a, a major trophy for the first time since they were uh, relegated to the very bottom of the footballing spectrum over here. So you can't doubt for one minute just what that, that trophy meant to Rangers fans. However, I think they're disappointed in the sense that This year, it is a huge title. Whoever wins the Scottish Premiership gets automatic access to the Champions League. That's a huge pot of money at the end of it. Plus, it's the chance to further cement the job he's been doing. He chose the other way. He decided that that wasn't enough to make him stay in Scotland. And I think that has left a very bad taste in a lot of Rangers fans' mouths.
0: Ems, you've spent a lot of time. I know you're good mates with Gary McAllister. You've spent a lot of time with Stephen Gerrard. What are Aston Villa getting? Who are they getting as a manager? Because a lot of Villa fans will be listening to this show. Of course, Aston Villa, a massive, proud, historic club in English football. Make no mistake about it. Villa Park, one of the institutions in English football. Mm. Who are they getting, Ems?
3: Well, they're getting a manager with a huge reputation. I I think that was one thing that became perfectly apparent at Rangers. Players signed to play for Steven Gerrard. I mean, we go to away games, you know, in Europe, whether I I was there with BT Sport, and you'd see players from the away team and the away managers wanting to take the photograph with them. You can't (laughs) underestimate the profile that this guy has. And going to a club like Aston Villa for a start, you know, having played his football in America, you know, they have owners there from America, Aston Villa, they will love the profile. That stephen gerrard brings to aston villa it will become a global attraction and for that stephen gerrard will be able to attract a player that perhaps you know if they get the same money they're going to play in the same league that they could poach from perhaps going to another team in the Premier League, where before maybe, you know, Birmingham, with no disrespect, Birmingham, Aston Villa, wasn't such uh, an attractive proposition. Mm. They're also getting a fantastic te- uh, tactician in Michael Beale. I believe the backroom staff deal has yet to be 100% finalised and announced, but if, we're, you know, what we're led to believe is true and that his backroom staff will go with them, Michael Beale, who is the first team coach, is a fantastic tactician. And a lot of the brains on the training field behind the Stephen Gerrard project... You know, they're getting him. Also Gary McAllister he's got a history at Aston Villa having been there in the past under Gerard Houllier so overall they're getting a, a very good package and a team that works very harmoniously together and expect attacking football. I mean Rangers have uh, based or built a solid foundation on you know very attacking win- wing backs. It's the way they play 4 uh, 3 predominantly really how Rangers uh, have, have set up in the past couple of seasons. It remains to be seen whether that will be what Aston Villa do but Villa have got some good some yeah. good players and I'm sure all of them will be excited about working under Stephen Gerrard I'm
0: reading tonight Ems, that Frank Lampard is now the favourite to take over at Norwich City to replace of course Daniel Farkey which means uh, mm-hmm. in my kind of reckoning it leads to a certain Giovanni Van Bronckhorst formerly of Rangers Arsenal, Barcelona Farnard to name but few and mm-hmm. I'm not ruling out John Terry in all of this Ems. Mm-hmm. What, are you, what are you hearing in terms of who replaces Steven Gerrard at Rangers?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a very attractive job. I know the the finances were published last week and a lot of people speculating, oh, there's no money, there's no this, there's that. A lot's gone on at at Rangers over the past three and a half years under Steven Gerrard. There's been a lot of repair regeneration in and around the stadium. The training ground is at a complete makeover. So Rangers have invested a lot also. They're playing squad. You know, there's a lot of of valuable assets in there. So I don't think the Rangers' financial situation is as dire as some people will paint that picture to be it's a huge job a very attractive proposition and as i mentioned if you can come in and get the team to to maintain their position at the top of the league which they're at now they're on all but guaranteed european football after christmas there's a lot still to work on here with rangers they're still in two cups so you know it is an attractive job for a lot of people john terry would rangers risk putting somebody into their first managerial role again i think that is a big risk but they've improved right with Steven Gerrard and John Terry is an equally as attractive name in the world of football to try and bring players in but from what I'm hearing Giovanni Van Bronckhorst has stated he is interested in the job you know his kids have lived in Glasgow before his wife has lived in Glasgow you know he knows the city he knows the fan base he knows the club so that is a huge attraction from Rangers perspective he's also done a fantastic job in his managerial career so far predominantly with Nord, where he won them the the. A championship. He also won a couple of cups there. I know he was out in, in China. It didn't go particularly well. That got called to an end at the start of the pandemic. So I think it'd be a bit unfair to try and judge him on that. But Giovanni van Bronckhorst is proving very popular with some of the fans. Whether or not everything will fall into place that he does take over. But yeah, I mean, another one more locally, the likes of Derek McInnes, a former player who who is out of work at the moment. Could he be seen as a short-term solution if they don't want to go for a long-term one? There's a lot of names in the hat, and, and as you can imagine, it's a, it's a job that a lot of coaches would be interested in taking. But crucially, Giovanni van Broncos doesn't have the club, and it wouldn't require any compensation, which I know would be an attractive offer.
2: The Offscript
1: Podcast.
0: I want to get to an interview And it's with a man Who is a fascinating character This fella It's easy to see why He has been a success In coaching He is the former England Sevens coach He led the Fiji Sevens To the gold medal At the Rio 2016 Olympics I am of course talking About Ben Ryan A fascinating guy I've got a lot of time for him Uh, He is of course synonymous With the Emirates Dubai Sevens He won it here back In 2010 And that's where we started Our conversation I wanted to find out just how special a place Dubai is to Ben Ryan
2: For Dubai 7s it does because um, I reckon i probably spent six months in hotels in, in Dubai over my time and where it used to stand in the calendar and where I'm sure it will in the future is it was the kind of first cab off the rank you know so you had a long time to prepare and then you come into the sunshine, into great hotels, into a, a stadium that you know is going to be rammed. And there's going to be, particularly with England, there's going to be a huge support here. And then with Fiji, everyone's second team anyway. It was just a very magical place. And there's certain tournaments and certain times in tournaments where you suddenly like look back and go, this is really special. And Dubai, as the light is dropping, as you're getting into those semifinals, finals, and it's packed and the singing's starting to move up, it's it's an unbelievable place and the, the, the players that I've worked with that have played in those games just rank it so highly as those moments that that are hard to really... You can't have too many of them in international sport and it's very special. You're in the annals of
0: those stadiums. You've got the games spread out over the two days. Give us an insight into what it's like, Ben, because I would imagine it's, it's probably a little bit mad.
2: It is a little bit. It's... it's it 's switching on switching off right and, and, and in sevens you have to be an expert at being able to do that and in Dubai in the past, you might have a an early quarter final in the morning and you might wait six or seven hours then for a semi final and managing that time where um, you know there 's all sorts of other things going on, and you might go out of the stadium into a, a local school and jump in their swimming pool and have a bit of a lie down and you almost feel like you 've got you know um, A number of days between games but it's in fact only six or seven hours and then you're just getting everybody you're slowly lifting spirits getting energy rousing people stretching people until they go into onto the field ready to to give it their all and that's the art bit about coaching that I I really love because um it's quite unique sevens like that you've got those six games over two or three days and if you're not on the money in those particularly those late knockout games then you know you get found out and Getting that right, yeah, it's really special, and and I love it. And I had my favourite changing rooms, and you have your your places on the warm-up pitch, you have your school, Rashid School, I think it was, that we'd disappear off to and go into the pool over there. And all of those things add up to just the memory bank of really special moments in Dubai.
0: Your story fascinates me in more ways than one, Ben, and I mean that sincerely. You, you stepped out of your comfort zone, you go down to Fiji. As your kind of success story with Fiji continues to go further into the rear view mirror, has
2: your outlook and, and your memories of it changed at all? You definitely do change your perspective on things as as, as you as you, you know, lift away from the time that you spent there. The more you go back from it, the more you realise that getting the best out of you know, individuals by um, understanding them better and creating a culture around them that they feel comfortable and happy to be themselves and express themselves and tell me, you know, how they feel, is far greater than all those marginal gains and tech. I've never seen a team fail because you know a bloke's not turned on his GPS before he's about to run on the field. But a center forward and a midfielder that are having an argument the week before, or a coach and trainer, or or some something's going on with a player and his missus that derails performance and it's understanding all of that. And we've gone through this period in the last 20 years in elite sport where at the start, it was all the geeky stuff. We can measure stuff like anything that got measured, like how fast you run, um, the training and GPS, the heart rate monitors, all that sort of stuff. You can measure it and put a number on it. You can't put a number on culture. It's much harder. So it's been at the back, but it's probably the most valuable thing. And we're seeing it in society, you know, about when mental wellness, about psychological safety, mindfulness. Um, all of those things they exist in elite sport and they are the difference between being good and being great and that's what fascinates me So with that in mind then Ben and it
0: is fascinating is that gold medal that you won at Rio then validation for exactly what you've said creating good human beings at the end of the day
2: Yeah I was speaking to a lot of people recently around um, how we set up elite sport and that you know if you, just because you haven't won a gold medal doesn't mean you haven't got a good story you know um, and I think they need to have, you know, these school assemblies rather than some of the gold medals. You need someone that come ninth or didn't qualify because their story is engaging and there's lots of tools on on how you can um, how you can just lead a better life. But the gold medal for me does give me a stage to go like, this is how we've operated. This is how I operate as a coach. I put people first and it's not just fluffy. You win world titles and European titles with England and, you know, events like Dubai and Olympic gold medals. And you can do that. You can create an environment where where you have that. And I think people have misunderstood, stand people-led environments, that it's a bit flaky. It is the opposite. It's empowering. And so, yeah, it does give me the, the, um, a bit more kind of, uh, cadence and gravitas around what I do because I can say that like, I've backed up with with success.
0: He's a fascinating fella, is Ben Ryan, a real deep thinker. We heard how since leaving rugby, he's done a whirlwind tour of different sports, different organisations around the world. I asked if he
2: was feeling the benefits and what was he enjoying the most about it. I'm enjoying not leading and being behind the scenes. Um, I'm still like, you know, you, you know, I can't. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was. I, you know, I was at the in the in the in the Emirates Stadium. You know, in the changing rooms there before one before a game, and it was really cool. And like I like, I'm enjoying that. You still you don't need to be front of house, and I think your ego kind of enjoys that moments. But I'm working in sports that's not rugby. It means I can be in the shadows a lot more. I I, I like that, and I'm really comfortable in that. And so I've been I've been working in some amazing um, environments. No one knows that that and I kind of quite like it.
0: I love that as well and and again it's very difficult this probably question to answer having sampled basketball having moved into the world of football is there anything that's kind of stood out to say that has actually blown me away? A specific situation of having to deal with something, is there anything that you can take us back to Ben that you've made you thought wow I wasn't aware of that but that is something that I can absolutely get on board with?
2: I think where I see cracks in, in organisations or teams where, where you know they're on a good track and then some, some, so suddenly something happens it's always generally you know there are some weird curveballs for sure um, but it's, it's generally around conversations and not being consistent and not spending time to, to find out what's going on with people and you know you, you you know i use the story of like you know altitude and if you're in a plane that's dropping altitude even if it's dropping slowly but it's doing it consistently eventually you will crash and it's the same on in in elite sport it's small little things um, so it might be a ton of things it might be a center forward that's you know um, wearing boots that are the wrong size but you know the sponsors make him wear them or and then he's got um and a bit of an argument with his misses and he might have you know, moved house and that was a bit stressful. His parents have come down to see him play for the first time in two years. Um, the coach then puts a bit of onus on him to make sure he scores in the opening half an hour. Suddenly, everything starts cloaking it around him. And if he doesn't have the tools to deal with that it can just cause a drop in altitude. And it's those things I find fascinating because it's the key in elite sport to see them come around the corner before they hit you in the face. And, and I love that. I feel like I'm like Columbo, a detective, you know? Um, and, and and like you're just looking for clues everywhere and you're being really really curious. And I think the answer to your question is, curiosity with the top coaches is the thing that I've seen the top organizations they don't look for another way because it's just different they look for a better way and they're curious and they're open and they're the they're the organizations that I've seen be the most not just fascinating but the most successful as well football right now is your baby are you enjoying it yeah I love it and, and I'll tell you I mean like why I liked football I think is because In rugby, we have it reasonably easy as far as getting our culture right. At national level, you know, everyone's generally the same nationality, speaks the same language. And in Fiji, you know, they came from the same economic background. Even with England, you know, you might have slightly different backgrounds and cultures and you've obviously got different personalities, but collectively they're similar. You go in football and there's one club that that I've done some work in. There's 20 different nationalities in their first team squad, about four in their coaching squad. They've got January windows and, and summer windows where players are getting nudged by agents and all sorts of distractions that are coming on board, as well as the day-to-day not winning or losing or drawing, two games a week sometimes, home away, travel in Europe, travel domestically. So many things going back to that Colombo where there's tons of moving parts. And so trying to get them like all, all working well... It's so fascinating, and I enjoy the game. I think it's a beautiful game. It's not because I've suddenly fallen out of love with rugby. It's purely that football came knocking, and um, you know, I like knowing that my ideas and the way that I operate transfer across. And I've been working for UK Sport for five years in summer and winter Olympic sports. I do a thing called Walk the Floor, where we spend three, four, or five days with each sport, and we go in and we see where they might improve, or you know, or what they're doing well, and share with the rest of the system. So my knowledge you know, over the last four years is as really, I've learnt so much, Chris.
0: In the UK, is there still a stigma for the teacups against the wall? Is that changing? Listen, I appreciate Ghana Southgate is someone who I think perhaps has changed that a little bit. Is there still that stigma there that unless you are the gruff big lad, oh, shouting, making sure we get up for a Saturday. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, there's definitely that. I think there is a trend, and and when you've got leaders like Gareth, um, I was speaking to to somebody that does some some executive coaching with him, and and she was telling me that Gareth's actually read my book. And I thought that's cool. Um, she didn't say if it, she, he thought it was any good or not. <laughs> but at least, at least he's read it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, he's <laughs> opened it up, um, and and I think you know it's shown that he. he He's shown that you know he's got his background as a footballer, but he's not he's not throwing things around. And I think that's disappeared. I think the players want to be respected more, and they require um, they require a slightly different culture. Um, and and so he's gone with that and he's learned, you know, how to how to deal with Generation Z and different cultures and different nationalities and different backgrounds to help them be their best version. He's a very curious coach. So I think, yeah, they, they, they still exist. I think they're very... One of the weird things um, that happens in football as a tradition is after the game, the home coach invites you into his change in his room. Um, so I get to see all of these people come in, you know, after games and you've won, lost or drawn. And you immediately see how many of them those type of, of coaches are around. There's not many left. They're 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 disappearing and you've got some really thoughtful coaches now. And I think people are beginning to see that now. Thomas at Brentford, yeah. he'll always tell me that his key thing every day is to go around and speak to every player and every management every day. Now he can't always do that, but he, he puts that ranks out as number one in importance and, and he's successful and doing well and he's getting offers that, you know, he'd never coached in the Prem before. So yeah top stuff Ben listen we're looking forward to bringing you back over here to Dubai you are back in four weeks time for the actual event fingers crossed and like uh, my old captain Oscar said that he's coming and playing in a, in a tournament in the invitation with six of the gold medalists so even just hanging out with them for two days I'll probably do that so hopefully I'll be across but not not sorted yet
0: top man is Ben Ryan a massive thanks to him of course we are just a number of weeks away from the Emirates Dubai Sevens The Offscript Podcast.
2: We hope that you enjoyed
3: this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.